Thank you for listening to our Love City Church podcast. Visit us online at www.lovecitychurch.ca. We pray that this message encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with Jesus. Fantastic. We're going to have a great day uh, studying God's Word today, specifically about family. And as you know, this name of this sermon is called This Is Us. And it's not necessarily a plug for the, the popular TV show, although I can't watch the TV show This Is Us because it makes me want to cry every single time I watch it, even the previews on the TV show when the guy comes out of the, 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 the bedroom and the girls say, Happy birthday, Dad! And he says, Oh, you guys! It's just every time it gets me. I don't know what it is, but... I just uh, lo- I know that I'll cry if I watch it, but the reality is is that this show uh, is really a secular perspective of family, but it gives a really redeeming picture of what family is really all about. And we believe that families is, is precious, it's beautiful, it's God-ordained. It's a wonderful vehicle for fulfillment of love and reflection of God's uh, love for us. But when we truly focus on our families, not, re, not idealized family, it's not the idealized family that we sometimes like to imagine. Real family, the family that we, we live with and that we live for, it's not always beautiful. It's not always wonderful. It sometimes can get pretty ugly. It's hurtful. And yeah, it's precious, but it's not perfect. We, still, we see these imperfections in our parents and we see them in our children and we see them in ourselves and we tear each other down only to build each other up again. And those dynamics don't necessarily stop when the parents get old and the kids are grown. This is the reality of family. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, families can get messy. Families can be thrilling. Families can be uncomfortable and families can hurt a lot. That's the reality of family. These are the ups and downs. This makes up our lives. Every one of us here comes from a family. But it's important that we as followers of Jesus understand uh, what God intended for families. Why did God create families? What was the intention of families? And we find very clearly that we find our definition for family in God. God himself is our definition. Ephesians 3, 14 and 15 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every uh, family in heaven on earth has its name. This is saying that every family that's ever existed on the planet has its name and has its identity in God. They find itself in God. It, it, we, we find our definition as a family in who God is. Genesis 1, 27 to 28 is a, is a picture of why God created the family and 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 what his purpose was, and what the family looks like. It says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and bless it, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what was the original intention based on this scripture for family? It's basically a reflection of the image and the character of God. Very clearly, God says your purpose is to be fruitful. Your purpose is to fill the earth. Your fir- purpose is to have God the offspring. This is your purpose to go out and to reign and to, and to subdue and to have dominion over the earth, to go and multiply. So the primary purpose for the first family was to satisfy the heart of God for his offspring in his image. He wanted his offspring, his children, to, to, to live a life a reflection of his image. So as a followers of Jesus, our objective as a family is to reflect who God is. 
to be image bearers of God, to, to, to live like Him, to, to relate to one another like God would relate uh, to, to, to us. And so we experience the family that God intended. We're supposed to fill the earth. We're supposed to have dominion and authority. But that's easier said than done, right? How do we do that? How do we, how do we experience the life and the family that God intended for us to have? How do we do this? The key to becoming a healthy, growing, and loving family is very clearly identified in Scripture. The verse we're going to read today identifies what the godly family looks like. This is the goal. This is the objective. This is our aim. And our key text today is found in Psalms 128, verses 1 to 4. It says, How joyful are those who fear the Lord, all who follow His ways. You will enjoy the fruit of your labor. How joyful and prosperous you will be. Your wife will be like a fruitful grapevine flourishing within your home. Your children will be like a vigorous young olive trees as they sit around your table. That is the Lord's blessing for those that fear Him. How joyful are those who fear the Lord. Notice here, very quickly, the author is writing, imagine for a moment, the author writing this scripture saying, okay, I'm going to talk to you about family. I want to talk to you about what the godly family should look like. But it starts right here. It starts with a person that fears the Lord. It starts with a person who follows the ways of God. This phrasing, the Old Testament uses this word fear often to indicate the idea of awe or reverence. This, this fear is to express loyalty to God and His faithful covenant. It, the, the idea of the fear of God is, the, uh, is how people feel when they come near the awesomeness and the greatness of God. They are awestruck. They are overwhelmed. It's, it's often used when the people of Israel came out of uh, Egypt across the Red Sea and they, they feared the Lord. They were in awe of His wonders. They were in awe of God's greatness. They were in awe of everything that God did. They were overwhelmed with the fear of the Lord. But, but in the end, the fear of the Lord really is identified by one simple word. Fear of the Lord is identified by one word and that word is obedience. People who fear God obey Him instantly. People who, who fear God obey Him even if it doesn't make sense. People who fear God obey Him even if it hurts. People who obey God obey Him even if they don't see the benefit. They obey Him all the way to completion. John Bevere said it like this, When we fear God, we choose to love what He loves and hate what He hates. One of the first men in the Bible that we see who is a, a great uh, example and a character of a man who feared the Lord was Abraham. And Abraham was chosen to be a father of many nations. And, and the, the Abraham was, was far thinking in his approach to life. And God came in Genesis 18, 19 and said, For I have chosen him, Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. God chose to bless Abraham because he knew he would follow his ways. He knew he would build his family well. God wants to bring blessings to your life. God wants to bless your heart. God wants to bless your family. God wants to bless you. God wants to pour his life out on you. God wants to bless your children and your finances and your business. God wants to bless you. He wants to. That is God's desire for you. 
But one of the ways for you and I to experience the tremendous blessings of God in our life is to keep the way of the Lord, is to fear God, is to be obedient to completion, obedient when it hurts, obedient when it doesn't make sense. This is what it looks like to fear the Lord. An amazing scripture of this example in Abraham's life, and and this came uh, when when Abraham had uh, been told by God in Genesis chapter 15 that he was going to be the father of many nations, yet Abraham was 75 years old and had no children. His wife Sarah was barren, barren, and she she couldn't have children. She couldn't couldn't have kids. And so here they were, a promised child that you're going to have a a child uh, um, in in the future, and and they were baffled at this reality at 75 years old being told that they were going to have kids. Well, it took them 25 years to see that that promise fulfilled. And and Abraham was 99 years old, and Sarah was about 93, I believe, 93, 94. And, and so uh, Sarah uh, in, uh, was really old, and God fulfilled this promise. And then 25 years later, we find that Isaac is now 25. Uh, he's their, their, their pride and joy. They love this kid very, very, very much. And now we come to Genesis chapter 22. It says this, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am, he said, take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. So here is this young man, this young man named Isaac, who's 25 years old, and Abraham was given a promise uh, uh, 50 years ago that he was going to have this child. 25 years it took the the promise to be fulfilled. They loved this child with all of their life. In fact, I believe that God, even in the scripture, was trying to challenge Abraham because this child was so important to him. Is, Is obeying me more important than your son Isaac? You might think, man, that's crazy that God would ask Abraham to to sacrifice his son. That's a little bit weird. Well, what you need to understand is that Abraham grew up in an environment. He was an idol maker in Ur. He would make idols. Uh, many commentaries and theologians would speak to this reality that he would, would make idols for the different gods and, and kind of like trinket idols. And so they had little tiny idols. As if you were to go to a tourist attraction in a different country and they would have all these different carved different things. Some of those are idols that these people would worship. And so uh, he was used to idolatry, used to idols. And yet there was a god, the Molech god or the Cheshmash God and it would be very common that they, they would people would sacrifice their children, their sons to the Molech God, and so it was a very common thing in his culture to to actually give the life of your child for this God, and so he never had done that, and I don't believe he had the belief system of that, but he understood in this context that when God was saying to him, "I want you to give me your child," he's basically saying, "How much." Uh, do you love me? How badly do you want to obey me? Do you really want to experience the blessings and the promises that I have for your life? If so, sacrifice your child on the altar. And you'll notice Abraham didn't even balk at it. He didn't say one word. He acted out. He immediately went and did everything that he was told to do. In verse, verse 4, it says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. 
and, and, I, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took his hand, the fire, and the knife, and they, they both went on them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son, he said. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I, I see all the necessary requirements for a sacrifice, but I don't see the animal. And Abraham said, well, God's going to provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together, and when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He had the knife in the air. Just imagine this for a moment. You got the knife in the air. You're about to, to, to stab your, your son, to murder him, to burn him as a, as a sacrifice to God. You're so ready to obey the promises of God, even to give up something of this, this enormity in your life. Maybe it's obviously not sacrificing your son, but maybe it's quitting your job and taking a new job that God's been speaking to you about. Or maybe it's, it's all these different things in your life. Maybe it's a relationship you've been in that you should quit. Maybe it's a relationship you need to start. Maybe maybe it's something going on in your life where God has been speaking to you to obey and it seems like it's so big. And Abraham's ready to sacrifice his son. And it says in the scripture, the angel of the Lord in verse 11 called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on your boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold him, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. And as it is to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sands that are in the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And, if, and in your offspring shall be all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So here we see that God wanted to bless Abraham. God wanted to bless Abraham's son. God wanted to bless Abraham's family. But God first said, do you fear me? Do you want to, are you really going to follow my ways? Are you really going to, to honor me and obey me as I asked you to obey me? And the author of Psalms 128 had this in his mind thinking, listen, the man or the woman that fears the Lord, those are the ones who are going to be blessed. Those are the ones who are going to be filled with God. Those are the ones that experience a great family. And from our key text today, we have four things that we experience when we fear the Lord. Four things we experience in, in relationship to our family when we fear the Lord. The first one is this, very simple, is that you are filled with joy. It says, how joyful are those? It says, it says you will enjoy the fruit. It says, how joyful and prosperous you will be. Come on, this is the start. If you are not in right relationship with Christ, it is going to impact everything else in your life. So this starts with you. This starts with your life. You can't have a healthy, growing, and loving marriage, or loving kids, or loving relationships if you yourself are not healthy, are not growing, and are not loving. Notice it says, how joyful you will enjoy. The sign, one of the signs that you fear the Lord, one of the signs that you're being obedient to the commands of God in your life is that there is joy. This is the key 
to experiencing a healthy, growing family is that you have to be a person who fears the Lord and it will, it will be flushed out in your life through joy. This word joy here, or the word blessed is used in most contexts. Blessed or ha- is the word happiness. It, it, the definition is an inner happiness and satisfaction with life, an inner satisfaction or contentedness and sufficiency that did not depend on outward circumstances for happiness. This is not a feeling, but this is a truth. It's, it's not a matter of how I feel on the outside or what does my circumstances say. It's a matter of a belief inside of me that I am blessed, not because of my job, not because things are good, not because things are bad, not because things are ha- hard, not because things are easy. I'm blessed. I'm satisfied. I'm fully blessed in my life because it's the truth about who I am in Christ. This word does not denote the idea of feeling happy that is based on circumstances. The fullest meaning of the the word is true happiness coming from my genuine need of God. True happiness coming from my genuine satisfaction in who God is. We find this amazing verse in my favorite chapter of the Bible, potentially Psalm 16, 5. Lord, you alone are my portion of my cup. You make my lot secure. Lord, you alone. Lord, you alone. Not my job, not my wife, not my kids, not my career, not my motorcycle that, I, that I'm going to buy in a couple of days, not, not my new car, not, 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 not winning the lottery. Lord, nothing, nothing in my life can satisfy me or bring me joy like you. You alone are my portion. You alone satisfy my soul. That joy comes through obeying and having a relationship with Christ. The word Hebrew word blessing or blessed also interestingly comes from the word which means to go straight or to go forward or to advance or to set right. This means that the blessing from God, the blessing comes from growth in your walk with God. So the more you take steps towards obedience, the more you take steps towards knowing God, the more you take steps towards understanding who He is and what He is and, and the things He is and, and obeying Him to the fullest extent that He asks you to obey Him, the more you will grow in your walk with God and experience this tremendous, overwhelming joy in your life. The second thing we see in the scripture, a fruit of what you experience when you fear the Lord, the impact on your family is, is secondly, firstly, you'll enjoy, you'll have this joy in your life. The second one is you'll enjoy your work. It says that you, verse two, you will enjoy the fruit of your labor. How joyful and prosperous you will be. This is an impeccable promise. You will enjoy your job. You will enjoy the results of your job. This is one of the main reasons I believe that men and women are frustrated with life. They hate what they do. They're bored. They're tired. They're not wanting to do what they do. They're not passionate about what they do. There's no challenge. It's not for a greater reason. And you'll notice that if you're following in the ways of God, if you're following in the things of God, two things are going to happen with your job. Number one, he's going to change your perspective on it. So no longer do you just simply uh, work at your job. He changes your perspective on your job. You see it differently. You see your coworkers differently. You see your, your boss differently. You see your objectives differently. Something happens because you're filled with joy. It doesn't matter where you work. It doesn't matter what you do. You are so filled with joy that your job takes on new meaning. The second thing that could happen is that God leads you to do something that you love, but you might not get compensated 
compensated accordingly. So you might be called to go into ministry or, or be called to be a missionary or called to start that new business. And you say, oh my gosh, it's not going to meet my needs or it might not pay like I used to get paid. But God's saying, listen, if you want to experience this joy that I have for you, I'm actually calling you to step into this new season where you are where you may not get compensated uh, 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 in the same ways that you did, but you're going to experience deep satisfaction from your work. This idea of enjoying your labor. I believe that there is this uh, simmering frustration in the lives of people. I believe that it's, it, that, that, that it's very clearly identified in Scripture in Romans chapter 8, 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We talked about this at the men's breakfast last week, but there's this simmering frustration that it just is right underneath the surface of most people where they can't quite describe it, but they're just not quite satisfied with their life. They just can't quite put their finger on it, but the promotion just seems like it's right there. The breakthrough seems like it's right there. The growth in that environment seems like it's right there. That relationship feels like it's almost there, but I always feel like I'm almost there, but I've never arrive and it causes this simmering frustration where you want to be liberated from this bondage liberated liberated from these shackles liberated from this feeling of frustration and you want to be brought into a place of freedom this sense that i haven't accomplished what i wanted to accomplish this sense that my marriage isn't quite satisfying like I thought it would. This sense that, man, I love my children, but I find that I'm just, I, I, that there's something missing there in my relationship with them. My marriage isn't quite working out like I thought. Life isn't quite uh, panning out like I hoped. I just feel like I'm clocking in and clocking out of life. I'm just, I'm just living the mundane and, and for what? Just to pay the bills so I can get up another day. And so there's a simmering frustration in mankind and, and, and all, of, all of people, all of humanity, where, where we sense that there's something more to our lives. But this joy for your work comes through a relationship with Christ. It comes through fearing the Lord. It comes from that place. And you find that when you begin to find your satisfaction in Jesus and you begin to obey his word and you begin to fear the Lord, you'll find that you begin to enjoy what you do. It doesn't matter what you do. And that simmering frustration is satisfied. And you notice in verse 2 it says how, how prosperous you will be. This might not be money. For some of you it could be. So you have the gift to, to the capacity to have more money, but it might be more opportunity. It might be more influence. It might be more of an opportunity to do what you love. It might be less work and more fun. Who knows what it is? But you will enjoy your work and the fruit of your labor. The third one here from this scripture about what it looks like, a fruit from fear of the Lord, is that your spouse will experience fulfillment. Verse 3 says, your wife will be like a fruitful grapevine flourishing within your home. Now, if you're here today and you're not married and you're listening to this online, I want you to claim the first two. Those are yours. But the next two, I want you to have faith for. I want you to have faith to believe that these things are for you. If you're single and you want to be married, faith to believe that you're going to have a spouse. Faith to believe if you're trying to have kids, that you're going to have kids. Notice that this scripture was written to men. It's showing that the, the, the fruit of a life of a man that fears the Lord, it's showing up from the perspective of a man. So, so it's actually first talking to men. This means, I believe very strongly, that if a man 
can fulfill the call of God in his life, a man can fear the Lord, a man can obey the word of God and be a man of, of integrity and a man of honor and a man who fears the Lord, I believe that then women will experience tremendous fulfillment in their life. The, the scripture very clearly, clearly, clearly speaks to your wife. This identifies uh, that the wife will have value, she'll have function, she'll be like a free, fruitful grapevine. The fruitful grapevine provided comfort and shade. The, the fruitful grapevine provides joy because they make wine. The fruitful, the, the fruitful grapevine, excuse me, provides profit because they would sell the wine or sell the grapes. It, it, it's a sign of strength in the home. They would plant these vines and it would be the only plant they would plant in the home and it would, it would find its way through the house and find every nook and cranny and it was a sign of strength in the home. It says that, that your wife will flourish within your home. This means that they're going to grow. This means they're going to be healthy. This means they're going to be increasing. This means they're going to be advancing. And it says that, th that they'll be flourishing within. That phrase within actually means in the heart of your house. It's really important we understand here today that this scripture is trying to identify that a, 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 when a husband and wife are married together, when, when there's relationship there, it's important that men understand that the woman is the heart of the home. She keeps everything moving forward. She keeps the equil equilibrium of the house, the ecosystem of the home moving forward. She keeps it all focused. She keeps it all centered. She keeps it all put together. I'm just talk, not talking about saying that you need to be a stay-at-home mom if you don't feel called to do that. My wife doesn't do that. My wife has never uh, had expectation on her to stay at home. She has, but she has her own decision to do what she wants, and she can work if she wants. She can stay home if she wants. But the reality is, is that the women are the control center for the home. It's hard for them to be the heart of the home if the man is not focusing on fearing God. Now, I don't want to be politically incorrect here, but I want to make a statement that I believe is to be biblically true for most families. That if the men choose to fear the Lord, to follow His ways, it will directly impact their jobs, it will directly impact their wives, and it will directly impact their children. Men who love God, men who follow His word, will enjoy the results of their life. In my opinion, it's biblically proven that a man is called to be the head of the household and a lot of the impact in the home comes from the man's ability to serve the Lord. But where we have a lot of our, our, our challenges today in marriages, where we have friction in our marriages, is, is, is when, when the man and the woman are both trying to control the home. When men and women both are trying to outdo one another or in some cases, the woman is the heart of the home. The woman is the control center of the home. But the man is not rising up and taking the rightful place as the man. He's not taking the rightful place as the spiritual leader. He's not taking the rightful place as an individual that needs to be strong in the Lord and strong in, in God's ways. And it, 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 it can tend to be the, the, the woman is pushing the man forward, but the man is not doing anything about it. And so we have this friction where a man feels like a woman's trying to control him uh, and the woman feels like the man's not doing anything or taking that initiative. And so we have this constant struggle in marriage where no one is really taking their rightful place. And we look at Genesis chapter 2, uh, verses 18, 22, and 24. We'll see, it's really interesting that this establishes what the, 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 the purpose of marriage is, uh, the institution of marriage, as well as what the function is. 
It says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So think about this for a minute. This was written about Eden. They were in the most perfect euphoric utopia. There was no sin. There was no pain. There was no fear. There was nothing. It was perfect heavenly utopia. And God recognized there was a fault. God recognized there was a problem. God recognized there was an issue. He recognized that something was missing in the perfection of Eden. He saw that the man was unable to live his life without a helper. The man was unable to lead. The man was unable to go forward. The man was unable to engage. The man was unable to subdue it and have authority over the earth and to go and, and to do the things God's called him to do because he did not have a helper. He did not have a helpmate. He did not have a partner. He did not someone to push him. He didn't have someone to support him. He didn't have someone to encourage him. So God, the Lord God, made a woman from the rib of man. And he brought her to the man in verse 23. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is born bone of, from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She'll be called, whoa, man, because she was taken from man. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother. So this explains the idea of marriage. People say, well, marriage is kind of an old-fashioned kind of idea. Well, this is where we find the definition of marriage, where a man will leave his father and mother and he's joined to his wife, his female wife, and the two are united as one. And we see that is the biblical context for marriage, and we see that's the biblical context for, uh, context for the definition of marriage, that the role in this context is the man was, was, was created first with the intention of leading, with the intention of being the head of the household, with the intention of being a, a strong leader, and the woman in the scripture was intended to come along and help, and to push, and to encourage, and to support, and, and to help out for the very purpose of being a helper and a helpmate, and if God had to do that in the very perfection and utopia of Eden, how much more so does man need his wife and his, the woman in his life to push him, to encourage him, to help him, to support him? I mean, if we look back at the fall of man, we see what, where the curse got us in trouble. And Genesis 4.16 says, Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you're going to give birth. And then he says this incredible statement. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Look at this. Prior to this, the man was leading and the woman was supporting, was partnering, was helping. They were equals. They were together. The man knew his role. The woman knew her role. One wasn't greater than the other. They were supporting one another. They were loving one another. They were encouraging one another. They were moving forward. And then sin came. The curse came. And now woman wants to control her husband. Woman wants to push her husband and control him and make sure she does it her way. But the Bible says that, that she, she'll desire that, but he will rule over you. And so now the man actually has, because of the curse, had now the, 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 the right to rule over. But the problem is two things. A, the men ruled over in such a way that was domineering and, and unbiblical and wrong, or the men don't rule at all. And so now this is where our friction in marriage comes from, the curse. The man doesn't lead at all and the woman's pushing him to lead and it drives him nuts and it causes him to push away from one another. Or the woman is trying to get the husband to, to lead and he leads, but he leads in such a domineering, unhealthy way and isn't balanced and isn't supportive and isn't a partner and isn't equal that it causes friction in the relationship. 
But thank goodness that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and be the great equalizer in our marriages. He came to earth and he died. Uh, he died on a cross and he was buried for three days and he rose on the third day. He was a re- a resurrected and he ascended on high uh, to sit at the right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit came down and the church started and Paul later was teaching the church of Ephesus about marriage. And he actually he was talking about sexual immorality. He was talking about how there should be not even a hint of sexual immorality in your life. And then he got down to marriage and he began to talk about marriage. And he began to define what marriage was all about and the, the, the pictures of the, the Christ uh, giving his life for the church and so the husband should do the same. And then it comes to Ephesians 5.21. And it says this, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Jesus comes and says, Listen, the curse says that a woman's going to try to control a man and the man's going to have rulership over the woman and it's going to be a problem in the relationship. But when Jesus is in your life, when you follow Jesus, when you obey Jesus, when you fear the Lord, you find there is now a great equalizer where I am now submitting to you and she is submitting to me. We are equal in all things, submitting back and forth out of reverence and worship and adoration and blessing and praise to Jesus. So now our marriages are experiencing incredible fulfillment. You can swap this either way if you wanted. If you're reading it as a woman, you could say, blessed is the woman. So you could say that your husband will be like a fruitful grapevine. So whatever your perspective is today, understand that Jesus wants to come and cause there to be fulfillment in your marriage, fulfillment in your relationship. Lastly here today, our fourth impact is found uh, in the very last portion of the scripture in verse 3. Your children will be like vigorous young olive trees as they sit around your table. Vines and trees are often symbols of fruitfulness in a happy, flourishing state. Young olive trees have three different significance, and this is what I believe will happen in the lives of your children. The first one is that they will desire to fulfill God's call in their life. Olive trees were a representation often used in the description of the promised land. And so when you're talking about the promised land, they would say the promised land flowing with milk and honey, milk and honey. They would say groves of olive trees. It was a description of the future destiny for the people of God. And so this is a representation of your children being like olive trees. They will be like ones who desire the promises of God, desire the call of God. They are vigorous for the things of God. The second thing is that olive Trees will make, obviously, olive oil, and oil in the, in the New Testament, uh, even in the Old Testament, reflects the anointing, anointing of priests, anointing of kings. But in the New Testament, it talks about the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so number two, they'll walk in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. They'll, they will be like young olive trees. They will be full of the Spirit of God. And thirdly, listen, they'll be people of God's Word. They will fear and trust the Lord. Olive trees have an extensive root system spreading far beyond the reach of its leaves. Reach of its leaves. These root systems were so extensive. We see this picture used two times in the scripture of, of, of the tree having branches. And it's, in, it's, and it's actually in relation to obeying God's word. Psalms 1, 2, and 3 says, Blessed is the man or woman who finds their delight in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in seasons, and its leaf does not weather, and all that he does, he prospers. 
The second place he uses Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water, sends out its roots by the stream, and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Your children will be people that fear the Lord, people that obey the word of God, people that trust in the Lord, that stretch out its roots deep to the stream, that don't fear when, when the year of drought comes, that aren't anxious when things go wrong, all because you made a decision to fear the Lord. So when you're making a decision about your family, saying, what do I want my family to be like? What do I want my family to do? How do I want my family to look? Listen, it starts with you having a personal relationship with Christ and making a decision that you're going to be a person that fears the Lord and follows His ways. And you'll experience the joy of God like never before. You'll experience tremendous value in your work. Your spouse will be incredibly fulfilled. And your children will begin to emulate the life that you lead. There'll be people that serve God. People that are filled with the Spirit. People that desire the purposes and the plans of God. We'll end by reading the very final verse in our key text in Psalms 128 verse 4. And I love it. I just want to read it just to say it. That is the Lord's blessing for those that fear Him. That is what God's families should look like. Filled with joy, love what they do, fulfilled spouses, and blessed, vigorous children who want to serve the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for today. And as we worship together, Father, as we spend some time worshiping you, I pray that your spirit would come and that you would impact the lives of people. And that, God, today we pray for families. We pray for single people who are in the room who want to be married. We pray for people in the room who are married and want to have kids. We pray for individuals who are a bit younger here today or this is outside of their realm of their season. I pray that you would teach people today that a great family starts with a, a person who has a passion for the, the things of God, for passion for the Word of God, a passion for the kingdom of God, that they would make a decision today that they're going to fear the Lord, that they're going to trust in the Lord. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening to our Love City Church podcast. Visit us online at www.lovecitychurch.ca. We pray that this message encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with Jesus.